Turn to Song of Songs, chapter 2, the Song of Solomon. Actually, we're going to look from verse uh, 15 of chapter 1, because we, went, we got up to verse 14 uh, last time that we looked at this, and um, let me just remind you if you weren't here, or remind you if you were here, and tell you if you weren't here, that the Song of Solomon is, it is, I think, two things, or it is one thing, but it has two perspectives. The first is that it is a love song, a love poem that has a great deal to teach us about the relationship between a man and a woman. And that's very clear from reading it, and it's how it's often understood and rightly understood. But it's also not an analogy, but an illustration which has plenty to teach us about the relationship between Jesus Christ and His people. And that does seem really strange to us because we just quite, can't quite connect these things. So, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about that as we come to it. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the, um, verses 15 to chapter 2, verse 13, and first of all, we'll go through it from the perspective of this is a love poem. What is this love poem saying? And then we will um, go back and go through it again and as an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church. Let me say just a couple of more things as a kind of introduction. Um, I hope that this will help within marriage and also helping it to work out who you should marry. That is, it's a really difficult thing kind of to work out who you should marry. Um, in Solomon's day, it would have been actually a lot easier for a lot of people because your parents arranged your marriage generally. Marriages were generally arranged marriages. Um, to some of you, that is so incomprehensible and mad that you just think that that is impossible. Now, I used to think that, but now that I'm a parent, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> so, um, myself and Annabelle will be sitting down and having some discussions with the president of Abertay's CU, and we've got three or four of you lined up, ready, just, no. <laughs> but it's, it's you, we, we think. Now, this is not the way that it's supposed to work. Well... Yes and no. Let me just say this, that it's a very good idea. Of course, I, I, I personally don't believe parents are absolute in this and the whole concept of arranged marriages and so on. But it's a very, very good idea to listen who, to people who love you and who may have good advice for you in, in something like this. Because it's actually quite difficult when you think about who, who you're supposed to marry. How are you supposed to know? What is in, what's involved in all this? Um, I knew a gentleman who believed that God had told him to marry his wife called Sharon because he read chapter 2, verse 1. I am a rose of Sharon. His girlfriend was called Sharon. He believed it was uh, a word from the Lord that he ought to marry this person. That makes it really, really rough if your name is not David or Sharon or Elizabeth or something that's in the Bible. You then could find yourself in a lot of trouble. Um, it is a hard thing a hard thing, a difficult thing, in some ways to work out. And yet, there is uh, some basic biblical principles that we're going to look at. Let me say also that one of them is this, not everyone should get married. And there's nothing wrong with you if you don't get married. Most people will. And that's why this teaching is relevant to them in that respect. But if you regard marriage as the be-all and the end-all, then whether you are a, um, 
single or married or divorced or whatever, you're going to be extremely disappointed. And then one other thing to say as a kind of introduction. Why do we find this so difficult to look at and to speak at? Because there's an, there's an element of um, sexual frankness in this poem which is not part of our culture. Even though we say we have an open culture where people will talk about things and our society is obsessed with sex, it is uh, in a way that isn't very, very helpful. I, Tim Keller has a series of seminars on this which are, which are extremely helpful. And one of the things that he points out that I, I found very, very helpful in this is that we have what is in, inherently what's called a platonic view of um, sexual relationships. Now, platonic, not in the way that if you use that word, we would normally use. It's basically after the philosopher Plato and his basic philosophy was that matter was in, in effect either evil or, or bad and that what mattered was the spiritual. And that whole platonic aspect did infect the church in many, many ways. So you do have people like St. Augustine, who's one of my heroes, who seems to regard sex as something that's just absolutely awful. And uh, th that's how you end up, by the way, with the teaching that priests should be celibate and so on. But I think that we have, I think Keller is right. I think that we find ourselves in a very difficult situation, even in a culture which is meant to be open about sex and sexuality, that it's... Very, we often view it in a lurid way, kind of like pornography, or we, um, I guess we think of it as kind of as a joke. So the way to get around it is to joke about it. And it's hard when you're being brought up in that culture, and it's hard when you're being brought up in the church where you rarely talk about these things, to speak openly and honestly and seriously about sex. It's just something that generally isn't done. But if you're going to teach on this book, you do have to, to do that. So, having said all of that, we're going to go through this, and I'm going to, I, I, as you know, I love alliteration, and I worked on the basis of, they used to get these wee Daily Mail cartoons that said, love is. So we're going to go through nine things that love is, speaking about the relationships that we have with one another. And then we will go back. First of all, love is proclaimed. Verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are doves. The king is saying that the, the lover, King Solomon, as we understand it, is saying how beautiful she is. And the image here is of looking into each other's eyes. It's not just, you know, the Disney film, The Aristocrats, where the two dogs are sucking spaghetti and looking into each other's eyes, you obviously don't know. Never mind. It's, uh, it's kind of, just imagine yourself down at the Sicilian or the Italian or whatever, and you're there with your beloved, and you're just staring into each other's eyes. That is a really frightening prospect for some people. You can hardly look at your partner. And why, why, why are the eyes so important? Because in some senses, the eyes are the mirror of the soul. Close eye contact can bring entry into each other's lives. He, he proclaims his love for her when he says, how beautiful you are, your eyes are doves. The dove 
has this idea of tenderness, of purity, of simplicity. So basically, he's looking at her and he's proclaiming his love for her. You are just beautiful. He's not sending, oh, by the way, Valentine's Day is next week, I think, um, you can tell, uh, next Sunday, and this is preparation for Valentine's Day. You can take some of these verses if you wish and, and use them, but it's not just sending a Valentine's card. It's something that is done, and, and it's, it's very open. I, I actually wonder, how would you cope being told that you're beautiful? You know, I know, not really, you know, and you'd be really surprised if your partner or friend or whatever said, yeah, I was only joking. You really wouldn't want that to be the case. How beautiful you are. C.J. Mahaney, and it's a great wee book, and that's a commentary on this, that takes it entirely from the perspective of the lover and the, and the beloved. He says, uh, before you touch her body, touch her mind and heart, it's really a book directed towards men. And he's really saying, Look, the very cheap view of sex that our society has is it's all physical. And you say, no, no, it's about mind and it's about heart as well. And how we speak to one another is very important. I think, um, I actually think what Rabbi Burns wrote was fantastic. My love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. My love is like a melody that's sweetly played in tune. Some of us, and I include myself in this, are not very good at expressing our love. You know, it basically boils down, you know that I love you, or here's a box of chocolates, or something along those lines. But here, it's expressed openly. She calls him, that's uh, the male, if you like, here's the female, she calls him, the Shulamite woman, she calls him Hansi. How handsome you are, my lover. It's not just that women need compliments, if you like, or to be told they're beautiful, uh, let me inform the ladies that it works the other way too. We're actually basically very insecure, most of us as, as men. And uh, to be called handsome, he's said to be called, he's called charming. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. That's not, it's not even code. That's expressly stating that um, they were at home in nature. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. There's, there's some dispute about who's actually saying that. But it's basically associating, uh, the cedars and firs were associated with pleasant smells. And so, the, both of them are expressing their love, and both of them are, are proclaiming it. And it does need to be. It, it, it's not just, you don't just do guesswork. You absolutely do not sit with a daisy going, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. You have to be told. Interesting as well, in these two words, how handsome you are, and the, the lover saying how beautiful, they are the same word except with masculine and feminine forms. Now, what I find interesting about that, and what I find interesting in this whole thing as well, is we live in a society where there's a great deal of sexual confusion because we, we try and have an andro androgynous society. I was astounded once to read that Calvin Klein, that their aim was to have a scent that was neither masculine nor feminine, that could be worn by both. And there is actually something wrong with that. God has made us male and female. Now, I know that that's been used as an excuse for a lot of sexism. And if you mean by a sexist, if you say, am I a sexist, then yes, I am, because I believe there's differences between males and females. It seems to me fairly obvious, and most children can work that out. 
And those differences are actually more than physical. And I think it is important for us to recognize that, especially in a society where there's all this kind of confusion about sexuality and, and, and who we are. But anyway, that's the, the, the first one that's just simply there, that, that love is something that is to be proclaimed. Then, love changes perceptions. This is probably my favorite bit of, of, of this whole part tonight. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Then you go back into chapter 1 and verse 5 and 6. Dark am I, yet lovely, says the Shulamite woman. O, daughter, o daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. In chapter 1 and verse 6, the Shulamite woman is basically saying, I, I appear to be ugly. She doesn't have great self-consciousness. Her, her perception of herself, there's a, a conflict at least in there. Now she sees herself differently. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. She's like a beautiful flower. The rose and the lily both carry this idea of blossoming and blooming. And it is quite an extraordinary thing that being loved can change the, the view you have of yourself. See how that's reinforced in verse 2, because the lover says, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. Now, that's a bit harsh on the other women around, but he's basically saying, you're like a lily among the thorns. Forget the rest of them. And I have to say, what person wouldn't want to hear that? He's really saying, contrasting and saying, I've only got eyes for you. You have beauty amidst plainness. You have softness amidst the prickly. You're uniquely fragrant. That's what he's looking for. Dare I say that? That's probably what most men would look for in a woman, amongst other things. But love changes perceptions. Because she is loved, her perception of herself changes. I suspect that a lot of problems occur in marriages and in relationships because of the fear that one partner has that the other doesn't really love them or doesn't really respect them. I think that creates an enormous problem. Then the third, love. Oops. Have I got this wrong? Ah, love provides. Look at verse 3. Like an apple tree among the trades of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Now, if you listen to uh, kind of contemporary sermons on this passage, there are all kinds of either allusions or direct statements that this particular verse is referring to different sexual practices. I don't think it is at all. I don't think it's that explicit. And I think it's a mistake to try and do that. And I think it takes away, actually, from the strength of the passage. Because what she's saying is, love provides. Here's an apple tree. What does the apple tree offer? Shade, security, strength, and sweetness. She's basically saying, here's my man. And he's offering me protection. And he offers security. He offers strength. And he's sweet. I mean, you'll find that all the different senses are engaged at this point. It's a very strong image, and uh, 
It's part of what it means to have that kind of relationship. And by the way, in all this, we're arguing that the Bible's teaching about sex is that it is, is, it is within the context of a commitment in marriage of a man to a woman, of a woman to a man. And out with that context, it's a no. Because you can't have this out with that context. Love provides. Then, love is pleasurable. He takes me to, he's taken me to the banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Uh, again, sorry, let me just go back to the provision one. I should have said this, that um, maybe this seems a little old-fashioned and maybe people want to question it. But um, a guy shouldn't bother even thinking about getting married to someone or getting engaged to someone if you're not prepared to try and provide. That's a big, important part. It's not saying that only men can work, and it's not saying that, um, that the, the husband is, has always got to be the breadwinner. It's not saying that. But it is saying that any man worth his salt is going to want to offer shade and security and strength and sweetness to provide for the person they love. Love is pleasurable. He brings me to his banquet hall, literally house of wine. He brings me to his house of wine. And if it wouldn't sound so sleazy in our culture, I just can't help thinking of some, you know, uh, American guy with a big deep voice going the house of love. Um, that's, that's what it means, the house of love. It's the he brings me to the house of love. He's taken me home. It's a house of love. It's a very, again, a very strong image, and it's an image of one of intimacy and of joy and of gladness. And then love is public. How do we get that? His banner over me is love. This is not done in secret. This is a banner, and he's saying, I love this woman, and she's secure under that banner, and she's not ashamed to be under that banner. It's this whole bizarre thing that's kind of crept in about secret love and so on. Part of, of, of being or loving somebody is being open about it. Now, of course, you can always find exceptions and so on, but I think it's good to be open and to be public about our relationship. She doesn't mind the whole world knowing. This is an open public relationship, not clandestine. Then the next one is that love is physical. You find that in verses 5 and 6. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. She's faint with love. She pines for his love. She has this longing and sustaining, and, and the images of the two of them lying together, hand under head, him supporting her, she gazing into his eyes. You know, it's just, you think, if you're like me, I could make a joke about it and say it's Mills and Boone stuff. Or it's just, you know, that's, but it's actually a very, very beautiful picture. There is a physical frankness here. The different senses are being used. Raisins and apples suggest taste. Now, because we have this kind of platonic division between the material and the spiritual or the emotional, whatever, we, we don't see how all that is connected. I kind of think that 
what we've done in our culture is turn the word, well, the word sex, it is a dirty word. It's become that. The notion of making love is, in a sense, is a far more biblical idea. And it is physical, and you do express that. But then comes this, or not, it's not a but, but love is patient. Daughters of Jerusalem, verse 7, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or waken love until it so desires. Now, here's one of the basic principles of a real relationship. It's genuine, it's real, and takes time. What sin does, sin causes physical love to be expressed at the wrong time, in the wrong place, with the wrong person. There's a correct time. The sinful world arouses and awakens love in false ways. Now, that's important, and it's important here because there's an oath here. Where she says, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Some people think that the gazelles and the does of the field are associated with fertility. But there's an interesting use of words here. Because gazelles and does of the field, if you take that in the original Hebrew, it's a kind of wordplay because it sounds very close to the name Yahweh. And the ancient Jews would not pronounce the name Yahweh. And so it's almost as though Solomon is is using this allusion to God, and he's saying, I'm charging you, by Jehovah, by Yahweh, I'm charging you, don't arouse or waken love until it so desires. Be patient and trust God. Don't run ahead of God. Don't play with love. That's what's being charged. Now, here's a woman who is deeply in love with her, her lover, and she's saying there's a proper time and there's a proper place. Don't just think of the now. You think of the whole lifetime. You might be a younger person and you're going to go out with somebody and enormous pressure is put on in many, many different ways. Well, you think about not just the now, the whole lifetime. Now, that doesn't mean that you only ever go out with somebody if you're absolutely certain that you're going to marry them. But it does mean that if you're certain you're not, you don't go anywhere near them. It does mean you're not just thinking of the immediate. You're thinking, and the best illustration I could think of that was the Beatles song, When I'm 64, which some of you will recognize. I, I, I used to love it and sing it when I had hair, but it goes like this. When I get older, losing my hair, many years from now, will you still be sending me a Valentine, birthday greetings, bottle of wine? Will you still need me? Will you still, will you still feed me when I'm 64? In other words, when, you have, when you're developing a relationship with somebody, you also you look ahead and you say, am I prepared to commit to this person for the rest of my days? Love is patient. It really is. Love also is passionate. Maybe people don't associate it with that, but here it is. Um, verses 8 to 9. Listen, my lover, look, here he comes, leaping across the mountain, bounding over the hills. My lover is like a gazelle or a young stag. I challenge any of the women here to put that on your Valentine card for next week. You're like a gazelle or a young stag. He's bounding, he's leaping across the mountains. This is not a guy who's shuffling his feet, thinking, oh, okay, so, so let's go out then, let's go and do this. This is a guy who's so keen to see the person he loves that he's bounding, bouncing up the stairs, running down Perth roads, you know, 
he's, he, he, there's an enthusiasm. There's something passionate about it. There's a compulsion in true love. The gazing at the window thing is not a peeping Tom thing. It's a, a lattice. And basically, what, what's, what's happening is he's gazing at the window, and she's gazing out the window, and they can't see each other. He's, he longs to see her. And it really is. The kind of, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? It really is standing outside the window, looking up, going, where is she? Where is she? There's a, there's a passion, and there's a, a compulsion. He longs to see her, and he longs to speak to her. It is a very bad relationship where you don't actually want to see or to speak or to be with the person that you profess to love. And that's not just when you're courting, if you like. That's also within, within marriage. Love is passionate. And then love also progresses in verses 10 to 13. My lover spoke and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past. The rains are over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth. The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. I mean, this guy is poetic. And we need to learn. Some of us who are men, we need to learn from this. But what's he trying to say? He's saying there's a spring in his step. There's spring in our heart. There's Spring is the time of new life and vitality. Tennyson in his poem, Lodsley Hall, in the spring a young man's fancy lightly turned to thoughts of love. Shakespeare, this bud of love by summer's ripening, ripening breath may prove to be a beauteous flower when next we meet. He basically says to her, come with me. Now's the time. I think that it's, there's a progression that occurs within any relationship. Now, how can we be sure? How do we know that all this works? How do we know if they're the one or whatever? James 1, verses 5 to 8 tells us if we lack wisdom, she would ask God. We should ask God. Proverbs 3 says we should, um, again, lacking understanding, we, we seek the Lord. And we ask God. But it really is not the case that God sends us a neon sign saying, this is the person you are to marry. You kind of use your head, use your heart, use your common sense and develop your relationship in the way that is described here. It's not wrong. I mean, I think this idea about people being passionate, it's obviously not something that, that is wrong. And I think that if you look back through these nine things, then uh, there's a great deal that we can learn from it. Okay, let me go back, right away, back to the beginning of them. And let me do this in a, in a different way. And obviously look at it, oops. Okay, if that is how we look at it in terms of our relationships, uh, male and female and so on, and that's what the poem is saying. It is saying that. How do we apply this in terms of our relationship to Jesus Christ? And is it legitimate for us to do so? Now, as I said, there are plenty of people today who'd say, no, 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 you can't do that. And that's a bit ridiculous and it doesn't make sense. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse... Let me read verse 31. Ephesians 5, you can read from verse 22 onwards, often read at, at, at weddings. Ephesians 5, 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, 
but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each, of, each one of you must also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. See, Paul is talking about marriage, and he, and he uses this, and then he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, what's going on, and, and how does this fit with the Song of Solomon? I'll tell you how this works. We are to seek first God's kingdom, and all these things will be added to us. I know that if I write a book and put the word sex in the title, it will sell a lot more. If uh, Dave or Owen puts up something on our website with that in the title, there'll be a lot more people interested. I find it somewhat disturbing that when I look through this, the stats for going on our website in St. Peter's, that the search word that gets most hits apart from St. Peter's is the word homosexuality. Why? I know that there is a, a way in which we, we seem, I think, to have got this the wrong way around. Keller, in his, his teaching on this, points out that sex is a signpost to God. Now, the first time I heard that, I thought, ooh, that just doesn't sound quite right. But actually, it is right. What we do, so often in our culture, and we have to be aware that this doesn't happen in the church, is that we almost have it the other way around. That we use God in terms of our relationships with other people. Whereas the reality is that the pleasure and the joy and the happiness that we get from uh, relationships in this life, they are just, in a sense, only a foreshadow, a taste of what it is to be connected with Jesus Christ. And so it's perfectly legitimate for us to go to the Song of Solomon and say, okay, as an illustration, what, how does this illustrate our relationship with Jesus Christ? And I go back to that verse, seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. It's a very easy verse to say or to sing. It's a very trite verse to say or to sing. But how many of us are really doing that? What we're doing is we're saying, God may be a way for me to get the things that I really want. I feel lonely, so I want a partner. Maybe I'll go to church. I feel sick, so I want health. Maybe I'll be healed. I feel unhappy, so I want happiness. Maybe if I become a Christian. And in all these things, we're not seeking God first. We're seeking God as a means to get what we want first. Whereas if you can grasp this in the other way, that it's, it's your relationship with Christ that is primary, even when you have an intense relationship with somebody else. That's why, of course, it's very, very difficult for somebody who is an, a very committed Christian and who has this great love for Christ to have an intense relationship with somebody who doesn't share that. That's the problem. The problem is, how do you share so intensely your very heart when your very heart is already given to Jesus Christ? You can only do that with somebody else who shares that heart. And so we find, as we, we look at this, let me go through the things again. Love proclaims. I love this image, this picture of Jesus proclaiming his love for his church. And what did he do? We saw it in Ephesians 5. In Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. 
Whatever happens on Valentine, nobody here is going to have a man or a woman give their lives for us. But that's what Jesus Christ did for us. How do we know that He loves us? Because of what we were singing about, because of the cross. You will never get a deeper love than that. You will never get a love that goes as, as, as close as that. And it's proclaimed. It's dramatic. It's powerful. It's Christ telling us that He loves us. And we, in response, surely should say that we love Him. Love changes perceptions. I, uh, these verses is a sermon that McShane preached in here. Many years ago, I think it was preached in 1841, so you can work out exactly how long ago that was. And I'm going to give you a couple of quotes from that. Here is one. The believer is unspeakably precious in the eyes of Christ, and Christ is unspeakably precious in the eyes of the believer. Being deeply loved by Jesus Christ, being objects of His unfailing love, changes the perception we have of ourselves. What did He see in us when we are so unlovely? You see, you could have a real problem with your self-image. You could wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and go, oh, no. But worse than that, you could feel rotten. You could feel really bad. You could feel as if nobody loves you. And you could feel as if nobody loves you because you don't deserve to be loved. And it really gets you. It really cuts you. It, it's, it, it's, it's devastating. And it drives you into misery and despair this perception that you have of yourself. And Jesus comes along and he doesn't say, actually, it's all lies, you're really, really wonderful. It's just that he loves you. And when somebody loves you, it changes the perception. I don't know, have you ever seen, have you ever seen somebody, a woman or a man who's been pretty dowdy and down in the dumps and miserable, and then they fall in love and someone loves them back and they change, they blossom, they bloom, just as it's described here. Well, that's what happens when the unbeliever comes to know Jesus Christ loves them. Do you believe this? The believer is unspeakably precious in the eyes of Christ. You look at yourself, and there's all these things that you… But Jesus looks at you. Do you believe that Jesus looks at you, and He sees you as unspeakably precious? If you get that, then the second bit, Christ will be unspeakably precious to you. We are like a lily amongst the thorns to Christ. Love changes perceptions. Love, prov Oops. Love provides. I'm not going to say much about this, but shade, security, strength, and sweetness. What we think of Christ is essential. Now, McShane in this sermon said something I think is very, very powerful. This is not about getting information and seeing a picture of Christ. Okay? That picture up there, if the light was on, you'd see it. The, the picture of Jesus. Or even, we say, that's not enough. If you get a card on Valentine's Day that even has a picture in it, it's not a relationship. This is what McShane says. What good would you get from Christ if you only hear of Him in books and sermons, or if you see Him pictured forth in the sacrament, or if you were to see Him with your bodily eye? What good would all this do if you do not sit down under His shadow? In other words, he's saying, what is the point of the beloved getting the ring, getting told how beautiful they are, if they never, ever commit themselves to the lover. 
And what's the point of hearing about Jesus Christ if you never commit yourself to Jesus Christ? Because there's plenty of people who go, yeah, well, I like Jesus, and Jesus is great, and I'd like to be a Christian. But you never, ever committed yourself to Jesus Christ. And we need to do that because he is the one who provides. Love is pleasurable as well. Christ is joy. I love, I've put the McShane quote up here. I love this. <laughs> Some people are afraid of anything like joy in religion. They have none themselves, and they do not love to see it in others. Their religion is something like the stars, very high, very clear, and very cold. It's so true. Oh, I have this deep understanding of God. I have this deep knowledge of God. I have this deep awareness of God. And it's so deep that I would never, ever dare express it in any kind of physical expression or joy or anything like that. The joy is deep. That's a ridiculous concept in biblical terms. You, you, again, think of it. If you are in love with somebody and they, you know, forgive the personal expression, but when Annabelle agreed to marry me, I didn't say, oh, that's good. You know, I, 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 I wanted to scream and yell and tell everybody and, and you know, because it's just a big, big thing. It's just a wonderful thing. And when we understand who Christ is, and when we understand what Christ has done for us, then yes, there's this intense sorrow for sin, and yes, we're aware of it, but here is the one who created the universe, and he loves me so much, he gave himself for me. What do I have to fear? What do I have to worry about? What do I care how tomorrow turns out? Christ loves me. That's all. That's all I need. It's all you need. And it's, it's joyful, it's, it's, it's pleasurable. The church that's cold and passionless, I, I can't see how that's a Christian church. Love is pleasurable. Christ is pleasurable. It's also public. Christ is a banner. Do we want the world to know? Are we ashamed of him? We should never be ashamed of Jesus Christ. His banner over me is love, and I am very happy to stand under that banner. You know, the University Christian Union's... Um, I was so impressed last year when I walked down uh, center of town past Abertay and I saw the gazebo up. And I thought, what's going on here? A gazebo right bang in the middle. You couldn't miss it. You're coming from the library. You're coming from the students' union. You're coming from the main building in Abertay. The gazebo's right there. And I went and I thought, wait a minute. That's Andrew. What's he doing there? Handing out coffee and soup and sweets and biscuits and goodness knows what else, and other people. And people were coming up, and I saw that small group of Christians, just a small group of Christians, in the middle of the public square, and it's as though there was a banner saying, we follow Jesus Christ. And I, I, I was so, I found the image itself just a, a, an incredible image. Love is public. Christ is a banner. Do we want the world? Yes, we do. We want the world to know. We're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. And he's not ashamed of us. Love is physical. Okay. How am I going to get that one in, in terms of Jesus Christ? Very, very simple. Please don't go the platonic thing and saying being a Christian is just all about being spiritual. 1 Corinthians 15, go read the whole chapter, but verses 12 to 19, Paul says, if the resurrection is not real, if Jesus Christ is not raised, then we are not raised either, and if we are not raised, our faith is futile. And Paul is basically saying, if our bodies are not raised and our spirits are not raised, then it's all rubbish, what we believe. Jesus doesn't just save your soul. He saves us wholly. And there is 
that, that whole physical aspect uh, as, as well within Christianity. I am not looking forward going to heaven to be some kind of ethereal spirit floating around in some kind of Buddhist nirvana. I'm not. I'm looking forward to going to heaven just to, to, to taste and to see and to smell, to have heightened senses, maybe even to have extra senses. Who knows? But it's physical as well. I'll have a new body. That's what Jesus loves does. It's patient. 2 Corinthians 4.2, the whole idea of arousing and waking love until his thing. Here is something, this is a little bit more difficult, but I think it's important. And again, especially as we think about bringing the gospel to people. It says, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You see, we can't convert anybody. We can't make anyone love Jesus. We can't make ourselves love Jesus. But a lot of people try and encourage people to be religious, and they arouse and they awaken religion in false ways. We are patient. We pray for God to work in people's lives. We sow the seed. We sow the seed. We sow the seed. We, we, we water the seed. We plead with people, and that God's spirit would be at work. I just want to take just a second to say to those of you who are going to be involved in the missions this week, don't feel that you are a failure if your meetings aren't packed or if you can't go back and say, we had seven people become Christians. You know, if you feel like that, the pressure will be on you to try and get people to say that they are Christians when they're not in order so that you can feel good and you can feel better. Don't do that. God could convert a thousand people this week. He could convert ten. He could convert none but the whole process could begin with many people. Love is patient. Love is passionate. Again, it's the passion of Christ. We use that, don't we, when we talk about Easter, the passion of Christ, and it's our passion for him. Revelation 3, 14, Jesus says, you're lukewarm, you make me ill. You're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. We don't deal with a Christ Who's the kind of take it or leave it, who's dispassionate, who's ice cold, who's cool? We deal with a Christ who's passionate about his people. And that makes me a little bit scared. See, when I see somebody passionate in the church, sometimes I get surprised because it's such a rare thing. And then you tend to think, oh, there's a young person and they're really passionate. They'll get over it. They'll calm down. They'll grow up. No, what you're really saying is they'll go cold. Why would you want that? Why would, to justify your own lack of passion? To justify your own lack of feeling for Jesus? To justify your own lack of tears for the lost? To justify where you are at emotionally in your relationship with Jesus Christ? What a horrible way for us to be. We need to ask the Lord to make us more passionate. Because we want to see the progress. Love progresses. Philippians 3, verses 12 to 14, talks about how we are to go on and we are to develop and we are to grow and we are to make our calling and election sure. Let me just read a couple of those verses. 
Philippians 3.12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. There is a spiritual springtime. Now, I love that image because in my own heart, many, many times it's winter. It's cold. It's freezing. The light hardly gets through. It's dull. It's dark. And I know that spiritually I'm not where I should be. And I feel that sometimes about the church, and I feel that about the city, and I feel that about the nation. And yet, in God's economy, in in God's way, it's not standing still. There'll be a change. And we long for that spiritual springtime, new life and vitality, new fruit, new blossoms. And that's why I finish with this, the invitation that we get. It is like an invitation. You're invited on Valentine's Day out for a meal. The person who you've been going out with invites you to marry them. What do you have to do? If you're going to marry them and stay with them for the rest of your life, you will commit to them. You will say yes. You're not going to. You say no. They can't do it for you. And in that sense, spiritually, there's also an invitation. Right at the end of the Bible, at the beginning of the Bible, it's interesting that you get God saying about the tree of life, don't go near it, don't touch it. And at the end of the Bible, you get this, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. In Song of Solomon, the lover says to the beloved, come, come with me. Jesus Christ says to us, come with me, come with me. We, we, it, it's not the kind of religious thing that we are used to. The kind of religious thing that we are used to is jump over this hoop, jump over this hoop, pass this test, pass this test. We like, we can understand the imagery of the test. We can understand the imagery of the worker getting his reward. We struggle with the imagery of the lover holding out his hand and saying, come, come with me. I love you passionately. I'm absolutely committed to you. What, to me? No, that can't be right. To me, no, no, I have to go and clean myself first. No, to me, I have, no, no, I will cleanse you. I will make you whole. I will prepare you for the wedding feast of the Lamb. We go, no, 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 no. No, I don't understand it all. I don't grasp it all. I don't. But Jesus always holds out his hand. And he says, come with me. Now, I hope that this kind of teaching is very, very helpful for you in your relationships. I find it very helpful myself looking at it. But it is secondary to the ultimate relationship, the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And I, my, I, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I've been a minister for a long time, and I still can't get my head around the notion of Jesus Christ as the one who is the lover. It's the most extraordinary image. It's the most daring image in the whole, or, or I think, of human history. It, it, in one sense, it doesn't make sense, and in another way, it makes just incredible sense. And I'm saying to you, 
Trust him. Commit yourself to him. Go along with him. There's just nobody else comparable. Nobody comparable with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you would guide us and help us in our relationships with one another. And I pray especially uh, for those who are married here and also for the younger people and who are considering relationships. I pray for the young men that uh, you would help them to grow up as godly men who would seek to honor you in all that they say and do. I pray for the young women, likewise, that they would have a desire to glorify you in every aspect of their lives. And I pray for us all that we would see the gracious invitation of Jesus Christ and we would understand the passionate love that you have for us. The Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. Lord, may that wonderful thought and idea be more than just a picture and idea to us. May it be a reality in our lives. Now, the days that lie ahead and for as long as you give us, for we ask it in your name. Amen.